Filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers. From blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store, there is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Film School podcast. Today's guest is Catherine Eder. She is an Austrian-born, L.A.-based production designer working in film, episodic television, commercials, and music videos. In her background in social and cultural anthropology from the University of Vienna, roots her approach heavily in backstory and world-building. Her previous noteworthy projects include Nicole Beckwith's Stockholm, Pennsylvania, Jason Orley's Big Time Adolescence, David Bruckner's The Night House, and Star's Family, Black Mafia Family. In this episode, we're going to be talking about her incredible career and her recent work as the production designer for a little film you might have heard of called Hellraiser. I am so excited for this conversation, and I know you're going to love every single second. It's all pleasure, no pain here on the Film School Podcast. Let's get into today's episode. Probably like everybody, I have a million questions about tackling Hellraiser, and we'll definitely get to that. But first, I want to kind of know... What drew you to production design? Um, because, you know, when I talk to people, there's, you know, you hear stories about Steven Spielberg and you want to become a director. You hear uh, stories about certain cinematographers. You want to get into cinematography um, or acting and you want to be on the red carpet. And production design is such an important, critical part of the filmmaking process, but it doesn't feel like you get to hear from those people that are behind the scenes from day one on these projects, pre-day one on these projects. Um, what? How did you discover production design as a career path and what drew you to it specifically? Um, discover, I think, is actually the right word. Um, when I went to film school, I came um, about 20 years ago, I came here from Austria, I had studied something else in, in Austria. And when I came here um, to Los Angeles, I thought I was going to dive into film and hopefully become a screenwriter. And I had no clue about production design. I had never even thought about it. Although I knew there was something similar for theater, it just wasn't in my mind. And as I was studying, um, a friend of mine, a mentor said, you have to do something to keep your bank account happy while you are attempting to become a screenwriter, whatever you want to do. And so um, I became an artist assistant uh, to two local artists, Jim Shaw and Marnie Weber. And one of their good friends was a production designer. And Marnie and Jim said, you know what? You study film and you love film and you love art. Why don't you start working in the art department? Mm -hmm. And that's really how that segue happened into um, the art department and eventually production design. And the first time I stepped on set was a, an iPod commercial. Mm. Um, I fell in love with the art department. I fell mm. in love with all aspects of it, of the hustle, the creativity, how we would be able to make things work in a very short amount of time, how we planned. And, and I feel as though production design picked me. And that's kind of how I saw it. I, I, I read a lot of Joseph Campbell and mythology and the hero's journey. I was like, oh, this is my hero's journey. Mm. And I felt like that door opened for me. And I 
chose that path and wanted to learn everything about it starting then. When you say production designer, you're obviously involved in a lot of the visual elements of the film when it comes to the sets and the locations. What does your role look like day to day? You know, like obviously that's the 10,000 foot view, but when you're in the trenches on a film, what does that really look like? Um, I think in, in one sentence, production designers, as a lot of other creatives in the film industry, we're storytellers. Mm. And the way I see it with production design is that we take over the nonverbal aspects of storytelling. So um, we take the script and interpret what's on the page and take that as a blueprint to go much deeper and um, and flesh out the world of characters. On a day-to-day basis, um, I think the art department is a very complex um, department because there's a lot of entities that work independently under the supervision um, of the production designer. But at the same time, we all have to be in sync in order to maintain a certain look that we've discussed for um, a specific project. So um, it starts out with location scouting. There is definitely a very... Um, close relationship to the location scout and the locations department that can start out very early on in uh, in pre-production before we start what we call a hard prep. With the location scout, we usually look at um, the first um, brushstrokes of you know of sele- of uh, groupings of locations that then we can present to the director and other creatives such as the cinematographer. Um, once we start hard prep, besides locations that need to be surveyed and drawn up so we can then alter them for our story, we also simultaneously start a construction department. That construction department is dependent on what happens in the office. We have set designers there and art directors. That entails a lot of management and numbers and breaking down the script and giving each set set numbers and each set gets lists. There's lots of lists and usually the art director and assistant art director wrangle that. And then there are the set designers who come from all branches of life. Often they are architects and they bring their architectural knowledge to the drawing table, which I really, really appreciate. Um, And those set designers I work with to, um, to take rough sketches that I do or rough ideas that I have about specific builds and take that to the next level to create a language for construction. That can be a lengthy process that can take up to several weeks, uh, if not months. And then there's the set decoration department. They are in charge of all the furniture, all the layers of character from art to practical lights, to carpeting, window dressing, The set decorator is really the right hand in terms of creativity to the production designer. I have a very strong bond with them because together we really create and manage the the creative visual world. And the um, the set decorator has a lot of people working under them. And then there's the graphics designer or the graphics department who does signage and all kinds of like graphics tell stories. Then there's the property department. Those are all the items that our actors touch from watches to guns to cell phones, Um, but it branches out depending on the story. Um, Prop masters are sometimes very, very creative in the department of having to create things, especially if we break away from realism. 
Um, and what am I forgetting? And then obviously there are PAs everywhere and runners that go and pick up samples and bring them back to the office. Mm -hmm. um, so as a production designer in, in prep, um, there is that sense to manage and oversee all of those aspects, but I always have help, obviously. There's so many people who have right. a lot of responsibility. And then I also communicate with other departments, especially the director and to go location scouting. Then we have um, logistics uh, conversations with the producer and the line producer we speak with, the costume designer about color palette. So it's, it's, it's a complex um, um, beast, I would say. And it yeah. intimidates people sometimes because it's sometimes hard to control how much we need to inflate and how quickly we need to work in order to cater to the schedule and location availability. Right. Well, you mentioned it being intimidating. And obviously when you went to go, um, when you went to go intern with Danny Toll, production designer, and, you know, we're trying to step into this world for the first time, what was most intimidating to you? Cause I, I'm assuming, you know, obviously being creative wasn't a concern because you had an interest in art and you were already um, practicing that out. Was it more the numbers and spreadsheets and trying to figure out, you know, what's doable on a production? Uh, what was most intimidating stepping into it? I think when, when someone entrusts us with their project, um, be that a director or writer director or a band, if it's a music mm. video or a brand, if it's a commercial, there's a huge responsibility in in honoring that trust. And I think that pressure can sometimes be um, intimidating. That's maybe pressure I put on myself, um, mm. wanting to succeed and uh, wanting to deliver the product and that I have um, guaranteed someone I would. So I think learning the language of communicating effectively mm in the beginning was something that excited me, but that was also very new. And then how do you project management? How do you give directions to people that on every project you you have a new group of people mm -hmm. or 70% of right. the people that you work with are new and everybody has their own personality and their own history and their own boundaries and their own triggers. So kind of, learning, getting to know people quickly, and then learning how to communicate with them so we all can function as a machine. Yeah. That's intimidating. And that's still intimidating. Um, you always feel like, damn, will I be able to handle this project that I signed right. up for? Will I fail? Obviously, the most important relationship is probably with the director because you're, I was listening to an interview with a production designer and they said they're kind of the hands of the director. You know, they have to be very intuitive, know what the director wants. And I, I'm curious, um, in those dynamics, are you in a lot of conversation with the director before accepting a position? Are directors typically seeing the work you've done and saying, that's the aesthetic that I want? Um, you know, how does that kind of relationship form where you know, okay, we're on the same page, we're going to be able to do this. It's definitely a sniffing each other out phase. And and I think it's um it's a little bit of everything. It really depends on the project. Um lately 
um, when I go into interviews with directors, I've obviously have read the script and I have my thoughts about the script. And I've presented a, um, a deck of some sort with mm -hmm. visual images because it's so much easier to present visuals and speak about those than describe visuals verbally. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that initial interview, I try and always rely on my integrity of saying we are both interviewing each other. This mm. is not a one-way street because filmmaking is such an intimate process. And when, when I'm chosen for a project, I want to make sure going into it that the person or the people I'm going to be working with the closest will be people I I like from the start yeah. or you know who that we have a, a similar language or at least that there's the curiosity to get to know each other's brain right. um so that's something where where I try in, in interviews early on also say the I describe how I like to work and I immediately ask for permission to ask a lot of questions mm -hmm. and by answering questions, even if those questions don't lead us to a final um, choice for the film, those questions allow us to learn things about one another. And I think with that, we can deepen trust. Yeah. That's also something I always say, like, I don't expect you to trust me from the beginning. And please allow me to earn your trust. Mm -hmm. And and so far... um. Yeah, I, there's some wonderful directors, and I think um, beyond our collaboration, we have formed friendships. And when I think about the creative collaborators in general, there are some that I can imagine working with and knowing until, you know, many years until I'm an old woman. Right. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With, with that relationship between the director and practitioner, because you're obviously both starting almost simultaneously on a project, you know, you're, we're working together to figure out what it looks like. Um, and you're coming in it as an artist, a storyteller, the director has a vision for the project. Um, how much, how much of a push and pull is there in the beginning to determine kind of the style of each moment or scene within the film? Um, do you feel like in there's certain cases where you go on a project and you're more a hired handed, you're just going to do what they want you to do and here's the look we want um, or do you feel with most collaborations that in the beginning it's a i really think we should go this direction like do you feel like there's this kind of not aggressive but this kind of back and forth pushing back on each other's ideas to say hey here's here's what we need to do i try and avoid the the pushing thing i i maybe because I'm a non-confrontational person. Um, I also think that it's in my job is I'm, I'm of, of service to mm -hmm. um, a project. I'm not necessarily even um, of service to the director. I'm of service to a project. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, my opinion doesn't really matter. Like my opinion isn't absolute. My yeah. opinions are suggestions. And um, in, in filmmaking, the collaboration between people is really what makes the the, the project um, uh, the project possible, I would say, and mm -hmm. also matter. And um, what I would I go into a project with is more saying, 
this came to mind. This is the emotional, um, uh, this is the emotional reaction I had to a specific scene or the environment. And, and we speak about larger context, um, maybe themes and concepts. And then I, I kind of want to allow us in our dialogue to crack the project and to crack the code and the visual language. It's very rare that I know from the very beginning, oh, this is how it needs to be. Mm. It's kind of an, ex um, an exploration and an adventure. And it feels really great when you try out a bunch of things and then you nail something. And, if, and that idea manifests and out of that idea comes a set piece or a story, a visual story tool for the story. So I've been lucky. I haven't really had that back and forth. Maybe sometimes in commercials, um, right. when when there is maybe more pressure in terms of um, personality, yeah, you know, and there's there's maybe a little bit more ego involved in in certain projects. But so far, yeah, it's been it's been going well, and it was always more dialogue than than bickering right. or pushing. Mm. Right. Well, tell me a little bit about collaborating with David Bruckner, because obviously you've collaborated on a few projects now, um, and uh, you connected with him on The Night House. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that, because I was fascinated reading in one of your interviews that you weren't into the horror genre at all. That wasn't something that was on your radar. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think you mentioned it was American Werewolf in London. You said scared yeah. you really bad as a kid. Um how I, I was really interested because like when you think of a project as where the genre is as extreme as say horror or comedy, where there's very specific tastes and interests, um, did he pick you specifically because you weren't aware of the genre and he didn't want you approaching it with that lens? Or how did you end up on that project specifically? Yeah, that's it. I mean, there's a long and a short story to it. But basically, I was finally back in L.A. after doing a bunch of movies in upstate New York. And I was at Whole Foods with my best friend who is a set decorator. And we were having a glass of rosé and we were super excited to be home and have some time off. And my agent called and said, remember that project, The Night House? They want to meet you and they want to meet you right now. And I said to my agent, well, I just had a glass of wine, but I can be in Hollywood in like half an hour. Um, and I'm, I wasn't really like I had put photos together, but it came out of nowhere. It was a very spontaneous interview. And I figured I'd just have to run with it. And um, I met Keith um, and David, Keith Levine, the producer at Phantom Four and David. And we had a conversation about the night house. And I think in that conversation, David picked up on the fact that I'm not really a horror fan, but I didn't really lead it on. That came out afterwards, after we'd already been in pre-production. Um, pre and I think maybe we've even started filming. David told me, you know, Ken, I picked you for that reason. Hmm. I really like the idea that you might not cater to the horror fans mm -hmm. as a production designer. Cause he felt like that's um, a, a, a tricky territory when you, build a world too much to a group of people to please them yep. rather than staying very grounded. And I think he, he, he responded to that positively. Mm. And on the other hand, and I believe I mentioned that um, in, in maybe the same interview that you read, David with 
that choice of inviting me to join the project opened a tremendous door for me to really explore this genre yeah. and to understand it at the deeper, wonderful psychological possibilities we yeah. have in dealing with very difficult questions and fears and things that might not be PC in, you know, nowadays. And we can mm -hmm. deal with it and explore that in that vessel of horror. And I enjoy Do that. Describe to me what it looked like when that door was open, because I'm interested to know, obviously you're entering the genre with knowledge of film, you know, so it's being informed by you're already in the world and you know, the, the craft that goes into these things, like what were you most drawn to when you started really examining that genre for the first time as an adult already, already familiar with, you know, how the system that turns out these movies kind of works? Mm -hmm. I, I think um, I mean, in, in the sense, for example, of the night house, um, horror in the night house deals with a story or emotions that we all can identify with. We've all experienced loss. We've all experienced the pain of not being able to understand how we will live another day because our father died or... Mm -hmm or we got fired from our job, whatever it is, we've, we have, ex we as human beings emotionally identify with each other. And I think it's the same with horror scripts. We read it and something deep inside of you knows how to identify mm -hmm. certain themes that you have experienced in your own life. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did in, in with the night house. There had been some things going on in my life and suddenly I was able to find those emotions on the page and use them as an anchor to sink my teeth into um, into the story or into certain environments. And the mm -hmm. same with Hellraiser, you know, on a much more complex level, I think. But um, there are themes that as human beings we can find in every story. Yeah. And that identification process, I think, is really powerful and can nourish creativity and can nourish um, your motivation to to tell a story or to to work on a specific project yeah uh, approaching hellraiser seems like it would have been perfect opportunity to just cater to horror fans you know yeah. and it seems like it, it seems like it would have been a, a moment to just go okay this is the i think 11th or 12th you know film it's a franchise that notoriously has a lot of entries that were specifically made to just keep the rights in the hands of the right people. Mm. And so there wasn't a lot of care given to a lot of entries, at least from the production level. Like there were still directors that would come in who loved the property and tried their best to make something, even though a studio is saying, Hey, you have a couple of weeks, like knock one out. Um, you know, so coming into this, you know, you've got the weight of Clyde Barker's original book, you know, which is there, then you've got the weight of the film um, that people are going to have visual familiarity with. And then you have the baggage of, you know, entries that people weren't happy with. Mm -hmm. So stepping into that project with David, was it, was it, let's go back to the book, separate ourselves from the films a little bit in the beginning and just go back to the source material, or was it, let's go to the book and the original film in tandem and see, you know, what can we draw out that we can still use? What can we leave that's a product of its time? You know, like the some of the leather and things that you mm -hmm. intentionally left out um, in that film. What was that process like? What was square one 
approaching Hellraiser? Ooh, what was Square One? Uh, I mean, Hellraiser has a lot, a lot of layers, and we a lot went of squares to go to <laughs> a lot of them. And um, I was unfamiliar with Hellraiser, and David introduced me to the book and Clive Barker and and the movies. I was obviously familiar with, but they weren't my choice to watch because of my horror trauma as a child. Um, and obviously I was familiar with Pinhead. So what we did is, I mean, I did my homework. I was like, okay, David in, invites me on this journey. I better do my homework. So I did order all the comics, the books. Um, I watched a couple of the movies, especially the first one. Um, I read whatever I could find online to really familiarize myself, not only with the visual world that we know, but also the subculture and how and why, why Hellraiser became such an important project 35 years ago. And that once I, I felt a little bit more familiar and less intimidated with the subject and, and the material, um, David and I started talking and, and we definitely worked, you know, this script um, is that Ben and Luke wrote in terms of stories, very different than, than the original Hellraiser. And David was very well aware about how the the story would really influence a lot of the key themes that we choose and deal with and visualize. Um, but David also knew that he wanted to honor Clive Barker, Clive Barker in, as the world creator of Hellraiser. And, and with that um, certain props and visual keys that that really open the world to us um so on a logical level that was immediately the instinct of saying the box stays the box but is being fleshed out and yeah. and david had a very specific designer he worked with martin emborg and and that was their collaboration the Cenobites was david and keith thompson a brilliant designer as well, and they had their sessions. And so um, David and I tackled the, the overall world building mm -hmm. and it's at its center, probably the mansion. And so everything in the second and third act, and as an extension of the mansion, everything that's um, the Cenobite world, Leviathan and the Labyrinth. However, I mean, and that's another story as well, because the Labyrinth ended up with a miniature company in LA that mm. did a beautiful job um, or a lot of it, but then it was also a lot of VFX. So I, yeah. I cannot, and I, I, you know, it's, I cannot stress often enough what a big collaboration of designers this was. Um, for the mansion, we immediately, we kind of came out very early on that, that we liked that our deco felt right for the Hellraiser world because of also the, the, the look of the cube. And um, David also felt very compelled uh, to, to honor and reintroduce the Romanesque arches that are so prominent in, in, the, first, in the first film, especially. And so those became certain key points. And then the themes is a much more complex piece kind of to discuss. Um, but to name a couple of things, what we wanted to honor is obviously sensation mm -hmm. and what and every like all the different facets of, of sensation. What is sensation from pain to pleasure 
to lust, to agony, there's so much. Um, another thing that we wanted to honor is the connection to the occult and occultism and the visual history of that. And then the third was that we did not want to antagonize the Cenobites as we are judging them in one direction from a human perspective. Mm -hmm. And David kept saying demons to some angels to others. Mm -hmm. And we landed at the point of view or perspective of angelical creatures more than yeah. demonic creatures. And that was really exciting and compelling yeah. um, because you can work with a, a, an angelic character probably has more vulnerability Mm -hmm. And I think vulnerability is something that's very important yeah. um, in this film. And, and there was a huge vulnerability in the first one. Mm -hmm. And and that was a, a great stepping stone and anchor also to build on visually eventually. Yeah. There were, that was, there were like three things I noticed in the new movie that made it very much. It's, and there's a lot that makes it very much its own. I mean, just the scale alone versus the original film. Cause it's no matter how hard you try to say, I'm going to forget the original film. You can't, right. It's, it's in our mm -hmm. brain. Those images are so iconic. Um, but I mean, opening in that mansion, you know, versus like this, you know, the original film opening in this foreign land. And then it's mm -hmm. the rest of the house is this very kind of grimy house and its own very unique aesthetic. So when it opens with the mansion, and this massive, gorgeous room. And like, I was like, okay, this is something very different. Um, but then the other two things were the box feeling more fleshed out and having a real purpose and all the configurations. Um, and then lastly, what you just mentioned is the fact that, and someone, I saw someone's letterbox review and they were talking about the movie and they said, in the original film, you know, there's almost this kind of, it, it's almost this kind of thing where you don't get the pleasure side as much and you see, you, you don't flesh out what the Cenobites are trying to accomplish as much. Um, it's kind of this wink at the camera, like we're here to give you a gift. You know, we're not torturing you. Whereas in this film, it really does feel like they're looking at these human mortal people going like, why don't you want this? We're giving mm -hmm. you this amazing. And that to me, made it a lot more powerful in the decisions that are being made in the offers that are being made to them um, versus the original film where it's, you know, Pinhead is like making these comments where you're like, he knows that they don't like this. He knows they don't want this, um, but we're going to do this anyway for mm -hmm. our own pleasure. Um, so tell me a little bit about, I mean, this was shot in Belgrade, right? Belgrade, Serbia. Correct. And the entire Correct. production was, right? Yes, basically, so, uh, uh, the production that I attended, there was some additional um, photography with the miniature mm. um, for the labyrinth in post-production in gotcha. LA. Gotcha. But yes, we had nine nine weeks, I believe, maybe 10 mm. filming weeks, and we were in Serbia for almost five and a half months, or maybe even six. Right. So... Um... Yes. I, I'm curious then I've been to, I've been to Belgrade, Serbia. And so like watching, I didn't know it was shot. Cause there's been some movies I've watched lately where they shoot there and you can just, you see the aerial shot and you're like, that's Serbia. Like there's nowhere mm -hmm. that looks like that. Um, but this movie, I didn't know, like I would never have guessed. I literally found that out afterward when we were getting ready to do this, this interview, I was like, oh, this is Serbia. So I'm curious, was, were the locations all existing or were they built within because i mean it 
it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like that brutalist architecture that's everywhere that's an thank you for that question it's very interesting um i think um yeah again um I, that's a, a very long answer i could bring um, david and i in our concept design um phase kind of walked in thinking we are going to find a mansion in serbia and uh, a lot of the concept design that we did for the showroom as our hero said really depended on the fact that we assumed there will be this mansion and we'll figure out the geography of that mansion and then the location of the showroom will be somewhere in the center of the home um, we very soon learned when we touched down in Belgrade that due to Serbia's very different history um, our, um, you know just plain out history, the architectural history is also very different. And there are no multi-millionaire Jeffrey Epstein type mansions in Serbia. So we started a very lengthy process of looking at a lot of different locations. And then we stitched together what would eventually become the Void Mansion. And that posed challenges. I mean, and I love those challenges because you look at a white room and you know, okay, this has to be that lounge where that party is going to take place. And that was a, you know, a really great exercise. And I really had a blast, although there was a lot of um, pressure, obviously, and time was ticking. Um, so we stitched together a few locations to become um, the mansion. And then we built a lot of sets and smaller set pieces to make sure that the geography that's really important for David, horror geography, he calls it, that that really makes sense. If, if David does one thing and really thinks about one thing is to honor his audience as really, really clever people. Mm -hmm. And he does not like to get away with something that might trick them into thinking. So he really wants a logical answer as to how a character gets from A to B mm -hmm. and how it makes sense. And in yeah. honoring that, we we constructed um we constructed this big location. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah. Oh, sorry, I want I have to ask. You mentioned yeah, Epstein's yeah. mansion and that's such a specific mansion to name. Was that an influence on the design of the aesthetic or was that just a was that just an aside name drop? No, um, the mansion, whatever, wherever Epstein lived, not so much as Epstein as a person. I think mm. those egomaniac, um, there's a, you can find probably a bunch of male egomaniacs that have unlimited resources in present day society. So there was lots of space for inspiration of mm. as to who who is void and how do we get to know him and how do we portray who Void is in his environment. Mm. So Jeffrey Epstein was somebody that I um, often just referenced um, because it's pretty clear what kind of person we're dealing right. with. Well, it's definitely the next time I watch Hellraiser, that'll definitely influence how you do that party <laughs> scene in the beginning. Um, yeah, I want to ask about that. But uh, you, you mentioned, obviously, um, the showroom, which, again, that was like the big clear, like, oh, we're in a different space. And it also ties into, I think, the other extremely different factor in this entry is that you've approached it really from a, a sci-fi approach as well, um, in some ways, or a more fantasy element, which is present in the other films. But, you know, 
not to be too spoilery because it's still relatively new, but like when that window opens up in the ceiling and you see this, you know, you see things coming down and it it's, was that a lot of influence? I, mean, I know there's the horror influences. Did you have a lot of discussion about, you know, sci-fi-esque visuals or more, um, you know, more conversation that like that, like almost more alien kind of discussion? Um. Yes, I I think um, what makes Hellraiser so unique and so interesting and compelling to work on is that it's so nuanced in its mm -hmm. sense of, of worlds and yeah. world building and where the worlds meet. Because you have these otherworldly beings that that represent kind of our darkest and deepest um, corners of our soul but they come from this other world. And when the dimensional doorways open up, they look at us as much mm -hmm. as we look at them. And there is, you know, that's sci-fi in a way. It, mm -hmm. it, it definitely goes into this fantastical nature. Um, and there was always a deep embrace of really taking those nuances and running with them. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think um, of all things, it, it adds to our opportunities of how we can tell the story. Mm -hmm. um, the fantastical element and that sci-fi element definitely is something that um, that fell into post-production a lot mm -hmm. because the skylight was something we built, we built a miniature of in, in Serbia and had green screen behind that mm -hmm. skylight. And then the, the cage that closes above it was something that was done in VFX. Okay. We only we only built, we designed, we did a concept design of the entire cage around the building. And then we built maybe um, 25 to 30 feet of the front of it and, the, and gave the assets to post-production. Gotcha. And Jacob Eaton, um, our, our um, post-production um, and VFX supervisor, he really ran with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was curious if that was all VFX or not. Cause obviously there's like the little panels they're interacting with when they're, you know, mm -hmm. trying to get in. Um, but I was curious like how much of that was practical and it's a testament to your work and the VFX team and director and everybody that those questions like, like that I'm shocked it's in Serbia or that it's like, is that VFX? Is that practical? Um, I wanted to ask, one more thing in relation to the the visual style. So, um, in the, in maybe this ties into the sci-fi side as well. But in the new film, you know, you have those familiar elements of like a wall will open, and you see this other dimension resting behind it, or you see this other layer. In in the original films, that's a very brutal violent process like the walls kind of rip apart and shred and you know and in this film it's very much like it feels like a portal is being opened to this other dimension and both are very unique visuals did you have a period where the intent was to go that kind of the camera starts shaking the walls start breaking and it opens up or was it always like this very ethereal um i guess angelic approach to that visual I would need to go back and ask David. Um, David worked with someone we also collaborated with on the Nighthouse, Patrick Horvath, on the dimensional doorways. Mm -hmm. That's how we called it. And there's a few times this happens, with the first time being the bathroom scene mm -hmm. when Riley's brother disappears. And uh, again, and I think that's really important to the horror community that 
things uh, do as much practical as possible mm -hmm. don't do fake blood if you can't like I, I learn I learn a lot of things about like really honoring practicality mm -hmm. um in when when filming something in the horror genre so Patrick and David did extensive pre-visualizations of like how could this go how does it go in the van how does it go in in um the bathroom and what are the laws behind it because like we as human beings on earth have physics and based on these physics things happen in a certain chronology the same needed to to work there needed to be some kind of rule set or mm. logic behind how those dimensional doorways opened and um if i and i don't want to quote david on it but i believe that from the very beginning he wanted it more of a staggered almost like the cube like mm. that it transformed in certain sections and um we always spoke about first this small moves then this corner spins then the lights start flickering and then we pull away and you see the labyrinth so there was mm. definitely a, a game plan a succession of of small actions that would mm. open up that doorway i hope this answers your question no, yeah, does absolutely. It? Yeah, absolutely yeah. does. Um, I was like trying to think of how to ask it because there is so much too that is, you know, the film doesn't label everything. And it's something I think it's consistent with the best of the Hellraiser franchise is that it doesn't just tell you this is what you're looking at and this is how you should feel about it. And this, it just, things happen and you go, what was that? Like, what was that thing I'm staring at? Or what was this visual? And, um, with that in mind, before I transition to ask you, and I can't believe we're already almost near the end of our time, um, I am curious to know um, the end of the film, and again, I won't spoil it, but the final shot is something that we haven't really seen as extreme a version of that as uh, throughout the franchise. And it, it definitely shows us a lot more look at the Cenobites world than our world um, as opposed to them always seeming like they're coming through our walls. It's like, we're actually here. This is their territory. A hundred percent. Is that something that you wish you could explore, you know, in potential sequels, or is it something you wish you could have explored more like being on their side, looking into earth versus being on earth, looking through these cracks into the world of the Cenobites? Um, good question. I personally was super excited about that scene too, and mm. and figuring out the the practical aspects of it. And then I I was waiting to like until at the premiere I was waiting for that scene to come because it was written so beautifully and the design of it that Keith Thompson um had that from from the beginning was just stunning, and um. I personally would love to have a voyeuristic point of view, maybe from the point, yeah, from a Cenobite looking at um, our human existence. I think that would be a great sequel. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what Clive Barker is up to. He's very secretive and he yeah. never speaks about what he writes next. He's very protective. But that idea um, that you just brought up is something that definitely tickles me that I would love to explore. Oh, I absolutely. think that's that's something very compelling to think about. 
Yeah. Well, he, I think he tweeted or posted somewhere about um, Jimmy Clayton's performance, which is obviously, I think the standout everyone's talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. And he said it, he felt compelled to start writing immediately after watching it, which is probably the highest praise that he could give. Um, So I'm curious to see what influences start influencing his work through Mm -hmm. seeing the cinema cinematic interpretations. That's going to be really interesting. Um, Yeah. Well, I know we are nearing the end of our time, so I'm going to move us to our uh, rapid round. Um, these I call it a rapid round. These always take longer and longer because uh, people get stuck on these answers and trying to decide which way to go. But we'll try to we'll try to go through them and uh, and see uh, what your answers are. And I can't wait to hear them. Uh, first and foremost, um, if you were given the green light to remake any film, what would you choose and why? Good Lord, what this a is why question. they take a while. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I saved to these remake for the, a the film. End. Um, like what comes to mind right away is kind of an Ewok story from my childhood because it's something when a television was introduced to my home. Um, besides seeing American Werewolf in London, I saw the um wasn't even Ewoks, it's those round. Oh, yeah, see, like grizzly kind of a round ball critters. Oh, it's a horror movie. Oh, is it critters and or grem- gremlins critters? The gremlins. There gremlins. you go. See, and um, and that's something that I wouldn't mind maybe seeing again. And the reason why I can't even tell you right now, that was literally a guttural child speaking hmm. right now saying maybe the critters. The movies that I remember are usually the ones that I really truly love and I don't want to see a remake of it. Yeah. Um so yeah. Maybe maybe the, the little critters, yeah. Is there um it, how do you feel about remakes in general? Like do you get nervous when you hear about them or like with something like Hellraiser that's you're being approached with? Is there some part of you that resists those projects because you know, there's so much pressure from fans, from like just the general culture or love for these properties, or is it something where it's, it's an exciting challenge to go, you know, let's try this approach. Yeah. To me, Hellraiser never felt like a remake because the script itself was so Mm -hmm. different, but yeah, I generally like challenges and Mm -hmm. they excite me and knowing I, I tried not to focus with Hellraiser. I tried not to focus on, the fact that there is such a massive amount of people out there waiting for it Mm -hmm. and probably judging it. I kind of just kept that out of my mind and just tried to focus on the job at hand and, and really enjoying the collaboration with a lot of people I met on the job and doing the best possible job Mm -hmm. that I could bring to the project. If I get nervous, I haven't really been in uh, asked um, uh, for a lot of remakes. Um, I'm thinking right now, so that's something I'll think about when I get asked in the future, I guess. Yeah. yeah let us know. Report back. What your yes, reaction I will. Is. Um, what is a, what is a film that people would be surprised to know that you enjoy? Hmm. Huh. It depends on how people know me. I mean, I definitely, and that's, yeah, probably I could watch Enchan- Enchanted. <laughs> I think it's such a good feel-good movie. I probably could watch it 150 times and still sing along. I really love that. Um, but then I also, like my favorite film is from Horikasu Koreeda, uh, an independent Japanese filmmaker. 
um, and it's called Afterlife. And it's mm. a very simple film, 16 millimeter. And um, it's of such beautiful, fantastical nature and it's deeply philosophical and moving. Um, that's one of my favorite films. And I think people are always surprised when, when I, I don't necessarily say I want to work on Star Wars next, mm. when I choose more like realistic dramas that deal with human emotions and that really allow us to, to learn something about the human psyche that we might not have seen um, in a certain light before. Which of your projects do you think is the best representation of you as a creator? Hmm. Hmm. There are a lot of milestones that I really enjoy. Um, the rest, the rest representation of me as a creator. Um, I mean, that really depends again on on the viewpoint. I really enjoyed working on Stockholm, Pennsylvania with Nicole Beckwith um, because it was such an intimate piece about a young woman being returned to her mother after she lived with her kidnapper for many years. And, and that was a very different approach in terms of creating a world um, than, for example, Big Time Adolescence with Jason Orley that I love mm. equally as well because we had so much fun bringing Easter eggs to the film and really going loud on certain designs. And then that's again, something very different from Hellraiser. And I think there, if I may choose the answer of just saying that's all aspects of me as a creator. And it's really nice that no one can say, oh, she, she designs only horror mm. or that's uh, a comedy designer. I'm really, I really enjoy how many projects I've been invited to. Um, and and the variety of of the worlds and stories they they all hold i'll put a bonus question in there um what is there a certain type of project you haven't get, gotten to do yet that you would love to like is there a certain genre or theme that you'd love to tackle um yes that there are several i mean one thing that i that i keep thinking about is recently or um, looking back, especially over my feature films, um, they often deal with young adults or people in their 20s. And it would be amazing to work on more stories of people my age or older, like more, um, maybe more mature story. I don't want to call them mature, immature, but just adult, like later in life mm -hmm. adult stories I'd love. And those stories can be set in so many different worlds like mm. those stories you could find in a western which i'd love to do um i i'd love to go home to europe and to austria um one day and film a, a movie in austria that would be a great mm. honor i think and i love traveling so put me on an airplane and let me location scout all around <laughs> the world that's pretty nice too right absolutely um <laughs> what is the best decade of film history in your opinion Wow, um, the best decade. Man, that's so exciting. I mean, film industry and the film history is just so exciting. Um, again, I would I would probably fall back to something um, as a child when I discovered when film was brought to me, and that might it might not be the most exciting for everyone, but I think what happened in the 40s and 50s with synchronized dancing and musicals mm. was kind of fascinating. 
And if you look at it, how how those kind of stories and films really became a band-aid um, for all the pain that people suffered in the world that was triggered by the Second World War. Mm. So that was exciting in terms of how we counteract something that's highly traumatizing with something that's very lighthearted and naive. And I, I was so mesmerized by the set design and choreography of and the colors of everything. And then obviously the power of the 70s is, is amazing. Mm. There's so much that was worked up in, in films in the late 60s and into the 70s. I also love the 80s because the 80s are, there's so much cheesiness to a lot of right. films that is so blatantly in your face that you have to love it. The 90s are very popular again now, I think, and that's my, my teen years. So Pulp Fiction is something that deeply shaped me. And looking back, I understand how much it shaped me and was a great decade. So, I mean, yes, it's, it's a hard answer. Yeah. My gut tells me the 40s and 50s were pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The forties are, are something that I've really just started diving into. And a lot of the early films that were like the first to really use color and really mm -hmm. um, like I, I, I watched the film, the red shoes, the Emmerich Pressburger movie and, and Powell and it, um, and it was mind blowing. Like it was mm -hmm. like one of those, cause even for me, like I've always enjoyed older films, you know, and then there's like, but there's a lot of, when you love film history, there's a lot of things you forgive because, oh, at that time period, like with effects or with this or, or, you know, for its time, it's amazing. This film is beautiful in its context and it's beautiful knowing how they did this for the first time and watching like all of the Powell and Pressburger films, like, you're like, this is a good movie forever. Like, this is like, mm -hmm. this is an amazing film and like the use of color, the, the, music the everything about mm -hmm. those is is incredible um black narcissists like the the shots looking down the mountain it's like they're these images that still 80 years later are just you know mind-blowing um so the 40s mm -hmm. is a great underrated choice and i wouldn't have until this year i wouldn't have ever even thought 40s <laughs> i would have been like yeah maybe the 30s maybe the you know the 70s like those really revolutionary periods but there's some beautiful films from every decade it gets harder and harder to choose the more that you watch yeah and i feel like looking back like 80 years ago now in films you know the sound everything sounds different and language mm -hmm. has developed so much it almost feels like we are meeting our selves in a much i don't want to call it simple but there's a, a naivete to it or mm -hmm. just something that's almost foreign about our all uh, our own ancestry and I find that very fascinating to really study my reactions to specific film content or color choices or fashion. And, and that exploration is is moving. I, I find that very um, curious. Yeah. yeah. yeah they're neat time capsules of mm -hmm. another, I mean, even Buster, I've been watching tons of Buster Keaton and you yes. know all of his films and you're still holding your breath for a stunt performed with no sound no it's 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 incredible um but i will not go down that long rapid trail but there's it is there it really is like for people you know whenever i hear people say oh i don't watch black and white which is like blasphemy but when someone says i don't watch black and white or i don't want to watch a silent film or i don't i'm like there's some silent films that are way more impressive than 
some of the films that came out this past year. I mean, there's incredible films from those periods that get left behind. And it is, it's a, it's cool just watching. I love the James Bond series. So like, it's cool watching mm-hmm. time capsules from the 60s, 70s, 80s. What was the watch that was cool? What was the car that was mm-hmm. cool? What, what did people think about this? Some stuff and ways people behaved, maybe not so cool <laughs> from these type periods, but it's, it's great history all around. Um, I'm going to take the last two minutes here. I'm going to ask you the last question I ask everybody. Um, what's the best piece of advice that you would give to an aspiring filmmaker who's listening to this? Um, I had to learn it the hard way and I'm so glad I did it. I would say it's okay to say, I don't know. Let me find out. I think if we make ourselves vulnerable and at times to say, you know what? I, I don't have the answer right now, but let me dig in and I'll I'll figure it out. That's very empowerful, um, empowering. And then the other thing is the best way of learning is by making mistakes. We can study ourselves. So be gentle on yourself when you make a mistake. Own it, learn from it, and move on. Um, I think that's also um, something that I always encourage in my department. It's like, yeah, mistakes happen. We're humans. And, um, and they are very, very important because we grow. That's a great answer and a great close the episode. Thank you again so much for, for doing this and for, for talking about your work. I hope that people who are listening will go check out, uh, Hellraiser and Nighthouse and go long down the list Apple commercials from, you know, the beginning of your career, you know, go check out, um, (laughs) all the things you've been doing. And I look forward to seeing what you do. Moving forward, fingers crossed, we get to see uh, some, you know, maybe a Western here or there and a couple couple new genres. And uh, But thanks again so much for doing this. I, I really do appreciate it. Eric, it was such a pleasure. And thank you so much for the opportunity to speak. I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Film School Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.